Talking openly about women's health care is often considered taboo. Unfortunately, this means that women's health care lags behind general health care. Cervical cancer, which is a ridiculously easy cancer to treat, claims many victims. Women should not be dying from this disease at all. But the reality is, even though healthcare exists, it may not be accessible. Women may be nervous to get a pap smear, and misinformation abounds. My name is Libby Dotson. I graduated from Duke in May of 2018 with a literature degree um, and a degree in international studies in Latin America. I'm affiliated with the Biomedical Engineering Department here at Duke University. More specifically, I'm affiliated with Dr. Ramanujam, who is a distinguished faculty and her center called the Center for Global Women's Health Technologies. My name is Andrea Kim. Like Libby, I'm working at the Center for Global Women's Health Technologies as a multimedia fellow. So particularly, I focus on the documentary film and the Cala campaign. Lima is a huge city, but it is surrounded by what you might call slums or incredibly impoverished areas that extend about two hours out of the city in each direction. She has a lot to contend with already. Maybe she has children. Likely, she has to work to help support them. She isn't able to just hop in a car and drive five minutes to the nearest clinic. Getting a wellness exam could be a day-long excursion. It could take her six hours and five different bus trips, all of which cost money, not to mention childcare. Who's going to watch her child? Can she really afford to take off a day off of work? Not to mention the cost of healthcare. And no one likes getting a pap smear. She may be nervous about it. It's easy to put off something that you're not looking forward to. So she doesn't go. Weeks reach out into years. A cancer that could have been detected, one that grows very slowly, is allowed to live on. Eventually, this woman dies of cervical cancer. This death could have been completely preventable. It's time to start rethinking women's health care. This is Spark Dialogue Podcasts. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the story of science and technology and how they're related to our society, healthcare, culture, philosophy, ethics, and the future. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Spark Dialogue Podcast is now on Patreon. It's a place where you can show your support to the podcast and even get involved. And since Spark Dialogue is new on Patreon, I'm going to send a special one-time gift to the first 20 patrons who sign up at the tardigrade level and above. So head over to patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. You can also find out more information at our website at sparkdialogue.com. Let's get back to our woman in Lima, Peru. One of the reasons that women's healthcare faces so many problems is that talking about a woman's body is often taboo. This is a problem everywhere, even in industrialized countries. Women's healthcare lags behind general healthcare. It's really quite startling in, in our baseline studies. It really, really is alarming how little many communities know, you know, just down the road here in Durham, and particularly in rural North Carolina, you'd be surprised how hard it is to get to a specialist to have a pap smear just an hour down the road from a prestigious research university like Duke. It's, it's, it's alarming. When I was a kid, um, 
and the Gardasil vaccine for HPV and cervical cancer came out, my mom wasn't educated enough to allow me to get that. She thought it was to prevent promiscuous behavior. We even are doing these baseline studies in Ghana, and what's being revealed is just a just a huge gap in knowledge, awareness, and empowerment when it comes to women's health. A lot of times surgery is a solution to treat cancers, and these people, these women might have a problem actually accessing or having enough money for surgery. Absolutely. And I just want to segue into our specific example of cervical cancer, because I think it really speaks to what you're saying about surgery. You know, cervical cancer is the only cancer that's slow growing, treatable, and preventable. It takes 15 years to go from a precancerous lesion to a deadly cancer in your cervix that can kill you. It's treatable. If it's caught within the first like five to eight years, we have very cheap therapies to treat it. And it's also completely preventable with the Gardasil HPV vaccine that came out in 2007. Taking all of this into account, no one should ever die of cervical cancer. No one. But this is not the case. The cascade model of healthcare for cervical cancer, the, the current paradigm, as we say, and standard of care, involves three visits to a clinic. The first is screening, which honestly, if you don't know what you don't know, and a lot of women don't even make it to that first step because they don't understand why they're getting a pap smear. My mother, like I said, who lived an hour down the road in North Carolina, didn't understand what a pap smear was for until very recently when I was able to educate her about that. So you can imagine in even lower resource areas how little women know. So then after screening, if you can get the woman to come in for screening, which is a colposcopy, then the woman has to go home and if then she has to be contacted by the doctor to come get a biopsy. So a little piece of the cervix tissue and if she doesn't have a phone or email to be contacted by the doctor for her results, that's where her health care ends. Even though the doctor saw a precancerous lesion that pretty soon will turn into deadly cancer of the cervix. And so the woman then has to be able to get the information from the doctor and this is hard in low resource areas. Then she has to make a second full day trip to get a biopsy. That's the second point of care. Then she goes back home and she awaits those results. And then if the doctor can contact her again and get her back into the clinic, um, which most of the time doesn't happen in these communities, these low resource communities, then the doctor um, treats the patient. And so, as you can imagine, one of the biggest issues is access because you have to travel to a centralized city or somewhere to get the specialty care. And then the issue of loss to follow-up. I mean, three different appointments is, is, is quite a lot for women who are working maybe two jobs and it takes them five hours and six bus rides to get to the, to the specialty clinic. It's like a leaky pipeline. There are several points where women's health care could fail. Misinformation, difficulty in travel to the clinic, lack of access, not having a phone, simply not wanting to undergo an uncomfortable procedure that could make you feel vulnerable and exposed. So how could this all be fixed? How can all of these steps be streamlined so one doctor visit is all it takes? 
Can it be made more comfortable, less expensive, and less intimidating? Normally, a pap smear involves a colposcope. It's large, heavy, and expensive, running between ten dollars and $20,000. In addition to the colposcope, a doctor needs a duckbill speculum. And if you've ever had one of these inserted in, it is not a comfortable experience. And we've found that it actually does prevent women. Um, Our data shows it is a barrier to women going and getting screened. That really uncomfortable, scary-looking metal duckbill speculum that opens the vaginal walls so that the doctor can peer inside and see the cervix with this massive 200-pound 20K colposcope device. Right now, that is the standard of care, and it hasn't really been modified for years. Researchers at the Center for Global Women's Health Technologies at Duke University developed a new piece of technology called the Kaliscope. It's very thin, like a tampon, and is shaped like a calla lily, hence its name. With a small camera that can produce excellent images, it can even be connected to a tablet or a smartphone. It's low cost and makes the exam much more comfortable than traditional methods. So what we're trying to do with the Kaliscope is take the Kaliscope device for the screening part combine it with an algorithm for immediate decision-making, and then combine it with an even less expensive gel ethanol therapy that's in clinical trials so that the three-point care paradigm for cervical cancer could be collapsed into a single visit to the doctor's office. So the Caliscope, which has an official bill of materials of just $40, replaces the speculum, and the colposcope for $40. So it solves two issues. It solves price. So community health centers that are more accessible to women can afford a colposcope device because, I mean, it is as good as the standard of care 20K colposcope. And then the other issue it addresses is getting rid of the need for the duckbill speculum altogether. And the tip is shaped like a calla lily. That's why it's called the calliscope and is asymmetrical um, because we found that the asymmetry allows for women who have tilted cervices, which a lot of women have retroverted or inverted cervices. If they rotate the device when they insert it, they can pop the cervix into place and get an excellent image. And then the third really important thing about this technology is it connects to a phone and application. And we've done a study showing that that women can take it home and get high quality images of their cervix from the comfort of their own homes, which is unprecedented and could really, really change how cervical cancer is, is addressed. Remember our woman in Lima, Peru? One of the barriers to her care was needing to take multiple trips to the doctor's office just to find out if she had cancer. Or perhaps she didn't even have a phone to receive her test results. The Caliscope employs a decision-making algorithm to provide instantaneous results so multiple trips aren't needed. What's really also interesting is down the road, once we you know, fully develop the algorithm, because we're still in research development, women can get automatic feedback when they take their images. It's, it's tricky because you don't want to scare women. Um, this is a new kind of space in healthcare, this kind of take-home do-it-yourself way of thinking about it, but it could 
we want it to be able to tell the women, hey, you know, something looks suspicious. I think it's 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 very important that you go follow up with a specialist and that kind of thing. How does this decision-making algorithm work? Is it using things like artificial intelligence or big data or something like that, or is it something completely different? We have two um, algorithm pro- projects going on. The algorithm is not complete by any means quite yet, but one way we're going about it is we have a huge database of cervix images, and we're basically extracting features. We have 42 features we extract from that. The more of those images we can feed into the algorithm, we adjust it based on what works and what doesn't. That's how we're going about the algorithm right now. We also have more of a deep learning project going on um, with another graduate student in the lab. Is this just as effective of finding precancerous cells or cancer than the traditional methods are? So, yes, the algorithm is not there yet, but the calliscope is there what we call image concordance study. The images are as good as the standard of care. We're trying to improve it so that they're even better. So we're optimizing the device currently, and it's going through several prototyping iteration phases. This device will allow women's health to be a lot more accessible and inexpensive. We believe that the people that can pay should pay, and the people that can't should be subsidized by the people who pay. So that's a tiered pricing model. So, for example, in high-income countries, we hope to have the Caliscope as a package that you can just pick up off the shelf and pay you know, a good amount of money for and then have it because a lot of women have also indicated it can help them with ovulation and fertility because you can actually see where you're at ovulating with the device. People don't realize that the cervix tells a lot about, you know, what's actually going on behind it in the uterus. And then in low income countries, we would, um, the tiered pricing model would make it significantly less expensive for those communities. And we envision selling it there in community health centers because this device and the suite of technologies takes away the need for a highly trained specialist in the city. We believe, and we need a few more studies to confirm this, that you know, nurses and midwives and community health centers can use the device or provide women with the device to take home, which would be huge. So we would sell it to them or even give it away depending on their ability to pay. And we don't look to make a profit out of this, out of our company that our foundation we've started called the Cala Health Entity. Allowing women to understand their own bodies gives them great power. It gives them power over their health and knowledge as to how their body works. It may help women who are seeking to become pregnant or those wishing to understand themselves more. And it removes the shame and taboo when talking about the female anatomy. This kind of just reminds me back to your first question about the state of women's health. This idea of of looking at your own cervix at home is not entirely a new one like if we think about the 70s and 80s um like the women's movements at the time i don't know if you're familiar with our bodies ourselves but our bodies ourselves was a book published by feminist movements in i think the 70s that encourages women to use a speculum within their own homes and be educated about their own bodies so it was basically a pamphlet that um, has a lot of information that women produce on their own to have more autonomy from away from the health system or away from health specialists and the like. 
it's just really interesting how this theme is reoccurring now through the Kaleidoscope. Um, it really goes to show that, you know, even though culturally or socially women have made a lot of movements in terms of economic rights, professional rights, um, you know, the second wave of that was the second wave of feminism. The third wave of feminism was about, you know, individuality. We all don't have to be the same type of woman. And, and, and now we're facing a women's movement through Me Too about sexual violence and women being able to speak to those experiences. So despite all these changes, um, the state of gynecology hasn't hasn't really changed that much. The design of the pelvic exam hasn't changed that much. If we think about the medical instruments that we use for pelvic exams, the speculum hasn't changed in over 150 years. So that really goes to show how um, the relationship that w- women or, or non-binary people with services have with their own bodies might not have changed as much as we think. Yeah, we're finally addressing these questions again through the Caloscope and through the Cala campaign. I think a part of the reason why the Cala campaign came to be was because through our studies, we found a lot of pushback about the use of the Caloscope. Yeah, so there's been doctors, so many doctors told us that the Caloscope would never work that it's just not a good idea until we prove them wrong with studies and showed that women do want that autonomy over their bodies and they can take a successful high quality image of their cervix and and that's really kind of the spirit of autonomy the caliscope and the cali campaign is about using the caliscope technology as kind of a catalyst for broader dialogue addressing the shame and stigma and and shame of experiences and feelings that that women and and anyone with with services feels in society today and i think it's you know very pertinent and relevant with the me too movement as women are starting to speak out that they now have a technology that gives them that autonomy over their body and it's not the you know a gaze of a doctor or an uncomfortable exam but an empowering experience we did interviews with women who tried the device to really understand what that experience the impact and the results were phenomenal or startling even how empowered these women felt by seeing their cervix you know just being able to look at your own cervix understand your body is such a powerful tool to mobilize women to screening to mobilize them to you know, speak out about their experiences to mobilize women to feel less shame because there is no shame in this beautiful, sacred, both a portal of life and also a place where of violence for a lot of a lot of people with services. This device has touched so many lives that there is an associated art exhibit called the Kala Campaign. It allows women to share their stories and change how we see the female body. Those interviews and stories we collected from women, the Caliscope is what Catalyze started the Cali campaign. The transcripts were so powerful that we thought, why don't we have an art exhibit, a storytelling art exhibit where we commission local artists and students to take those transcripts and stories and interpret them into art. And this snowballed and the more and more artists, we were worried we wouldn't find artists who would want to do this. And we met one artist, you know, Meg Stein, who was like, I've been waiting for a project like this. And she connected us to all these different people and this whole community of local artists just here in Durham. 
expanded to Ghana, Nigeria, Puerto Rico, Colorado, Washington. We had art pieces sent from all of these places, and it went beyond just the transcripts. All the artists kept saying, well, I have my own story that I want to tell. The Kaleidoscope device, I want to try it first off, but second off, even if I don't try it, it's so exciting and empowers me and makes me want to tell my story. Right. And in this way, the Kaleidoscope um, has two functions. The first is literal. Um, it's everything we've just talked about in terms of being used for cervical cancer screenings, but it's also metaphorical, right? So, you know, when you're screening yourself for cervical cancer and it's an empowering experience that gives you autonomy over your own, own health outcomes, that also is a metaphor for creating new perceptions about this part of the body. So that's kind of what we were trying to do with the Cala campaign and the art exhibit. You know, we give woman a kaleidoscope or we or we sh- kind of introduce the idea of the kaleidoscope to these um, artists and see what kind of reflections that brings about them. So in this way, the kaleidoscope is essentially a platform for storytelling as much as it is a medical device. This is an art exhibit like no other. Imagine the energy. Imagine the empowerment. On opening night, you arrive at the entrance, and that itself is unlike anything you've ever seen before. Um, it was a challenging curatorial project because we wanted to disorient people who walked in, freak them out a little bit. So the entrance of the exhibit, when you opened the door, it was a closed door, was a giant vulva you had to walk through. And then it was a tunnel, a vaginal canal tunnel with a curtain and an intention setting question that each person who walked in had to pick up the card with the question and read it. And then as you unveiled the curtain, there was a just a phenomenal painting by a student of her completely naked with her legs up. And you could see everything, her um, vulva, her, her just everything. And it was an honest depiction of herself, you know, of, of how, you know, the body's not perfect. And, and what's also interesting about, about her work, and I'm going to leave her name out just because I know, um, this is a tricky subject for her because she's from South Korea where that painting would have caused her a huge fine or put her in jail. So I really, really appreciated that piece because it really set the intention as you came through that canal, vaginal canal, abstract tunnel, and you unveil it, it's supposed to shock you and um, really set the mood. And we had so many different, different mediums. We had infographics to make it educational. Um, We had, you know, paintings by... Jenny Eggleston that were about sexual violence. We had literal pen and ink paintings um, about the reproductive anatomy, a fertility doll from Liberia, just a lot of things. Um, and it was really, really awesome. Mm-hmm. I really enjoyed um, reading the creative statements that accompanied the pieces because um, it really brought light to a lot of issues that are related to reproductive anatomy. For example, one of our artists is from Puerto Rico and her pieces, uh, her creative pieces um, reflected on how birth control was tested on Puerto Rican women um, in dosages that were significantly higher, I think like 10 times, 10 times higher than it was approved for as a safe dosage in the U.S. And that had a lot of repercussions for, for women, for Puerto Rican women, caused cancers. And so that just goes to show how um, 
these chemicals and these hormone or these medications could have such a big impact on the bodies. And it goes to show which parts of the world are less prioritized in terms of safety. Um, and another thing I'd like to mention that it shocked me that so many faculty and doctors who came through the exhibit didn't realize also that um, one third of Puerto Rican women were sterilized from the 30s to the 60s. One third of the women on the island. And that's a fact that only people on the island seem to know. Uh, I have a very close family connection there and just things like this were revealed and it initiated such beautiful dialogue. You know, usually on an opening night for an exhibit, it's quiet. People are contemplating the pieces and the work, but everyone was full of energy and dialogue and having conversations with people they never would about things they never would because it was a safe space. We had no idea what to expect because of the controversial nature of the exhibit. If you missed the art exhibit, you may still have a chance to experience this energy. The Cala Campaign is also releasing a full-length documentary, which rethinks sexual health. Right now, we're currently in production of this documentary, um, and it's basically about all these issues that we have just discussed. Um, we kind of want to create a film that um, captures not only the structural level of cervical cancer prevention and barriers that women have to early screenings, but also to the personal level and show how personal perceptions about our own reproductive anatomy could be a barrier into seeking health care. So for this film, uh, I've been capturing the entire story about how the caloscope was prototyped and how that prototype process involved um, speaking to women's groups, um, receiving feedback, and just a really collaborative and iterative process. I captured the story of how this technology was developed, but also opinions and, and insights from global health specialists, as well as physicians. Um, I'll also be traveling to Ghana, where our lab is conducting clinical trials of the caloscope and training physicians and nurses. The lead designer of the caloscope is Ghanaian, and so she's bringing this technology back to her country of origin. So I think it will be a really interesting story to capture how, you know, even with research, it's having a personal connection to research and science is really what brings about um, passionate um, approaches and humanistic approaches to change. A lot of the documentary is really using the caloscope as a test case to show how it's time to transform healthcare. We call it disruptive innovation. There's a podcast by Clay Christensen about this. And it's, you know, basically this idea that if you think of healthcare as a bunch of concentric circles, with the obviously the largest circle being the most rural communities and the center being, for example, Duke University Hospital. The trend in healthcare over the last 50 years is only moving inward. So what I mean by that is it's the technologies that are being developed are so complex, so expensive, so difficult to use that all the best healthcare is moving away from the people who need it the most in the outer rings of that circle. And really the spirit of, I think, our lab in this documentary is showing the reverse of that and how we want to show people that you can leverage technology to make 
these tools and devices more accessible, affordable, and easy to use. So you shift the point of care. Um, we call it task shifting from specialists to midwives and nurses because of deep learning algorithms and the ease of use of devices like the Caliscope. So I think that's a lot of the spirit of Andrea's documentary, but focusing on the Caliscope specifically in that that journey with the Caliscope. Right. I think that the documentary really gestures towards this paradigm shift that comes when women or marginalized groups speaks to their own experiences. And speaking to your own experience is only possible if you first attend to your own health care. And that's kind of what the, the Caliscope enables. It allows this change to happen literally, quite literally, from, from the inside out, from that embodied experience of the individual woman to extend towards her becoming an advocate for her own health, then the health of her community and speaking to other women about it. And this kind of creates this groundswell that leads to um, a more democratized approach to, to healthcare. I would love for everyone who listens to this podcast to check out our website at thecalacampaign.com. I thanked Andrea and Libby for what they're doing. They and everyone working on the project are making a real difference for people. They're saving lives. So thank you to everyone in this project and for all those who work in healthcare every day, creatively thinking on how things can be improved, how barriers can be removed, how we can be healthier, and how we can have a more positive relationship with our own bodies. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com. Thanks for joining us and see us in two weeks for another episode. And remember to check out the podcast on Patreon. Some of the background music you heard is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. Others are clips from Sardana by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com. Quiet Rain by Only Meath. City Sunshine by Kevin McLeod and Reverie, a small theme, by Ghost. More information about these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.